Morning Church. <laughs> I love the energy. I think that I know most of you, but for those of you who don't know, my name is Cassidy Shaw. As Ben was saying, I'm a seminary student at Anderson University. I'm getting my master's in theological studies. I hope to graduate in May, so that's both exciting and terrifying. I'm married to Brian Shaw, who is a child of this church. He was raised here. We met in the sanctuary. We got engaged in the sanctuary. I love that man. <laughs> He's the best. Um, since I was here in the summer of 2019, with Ben, actually, we were interns together. Um, Brian and I have gotten a puppy. And I swore I would not be the dog mom who called my in-laws' dogs his cousins, or who would just introduce him for the fun of it. But look at him. He's so cute. It's the same dog, so a haircut can do a lot of things for somebody. <laughs> I love him. <laughs> um, I have the pleasure of every so often coming here and preaching, either while Erin's away or while she's needing somebody to pulpit fill. Um, and I'm grateful not only for the trust that Aaron puts in me, but also the investment that you all have made into my life and my calling. I think I say that every time I'm here, but it's because of the significance of this place to me. So uh, between the ages of 3 and 12, I participated in soccer, gymnastics, dancing, horseback riding, and playing trumpet. That's nine years and five separate hobbies. Not, none of them I did at the same time. And so I don't know that I'm the picture of commitment to my activities. I don't know that I stick with things very long. On the screen, you'll see a picture of me and my horse. I threw in an extra one. Um, this is how I, the bigger one is how I actually feel about the horse. The smaller one is how I feel about being in heat with long pants all day long. It's a little bit like, really, Mom? You had to take a picture? So this is the activity that I got the most into, that I spent the most time in, my parents invested the most money in, and I rode this horse Saber for a while, and then I leased him for about a year. I showed him in a summer um, fair, in a 4-H fair in Indianapolis, and you can see, because of the really cool digital date up there, that it was 11 years ago. I was 12, so you can do the math. Um, it was a long time ago. Um, it was a terrible summer. It was really, 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 really fun to get some blue ribbons and really, really fun to ride the horse. And I loved the showing part of it, to be a part of something bigger. But then it got hot because it was July, and it was miserable. There was no break. I continued riding Saber through the fall, and then January. I don't know if you know this about winter, but it gets cold, and it gets dark really early, and if you don't know this about winter, you're gonna have a shock in just a few months because it's gonna get cold and dark early. It's a little bit cold, or a little bit warmer in Indiana than Michigan, but not that much. So, as it got cold, I started to go out in the dark and get a horse, and sometimes it was the right one, and sometimes it was not the right horse. So then I would have to go back out. And there was just one day where I was like, I'm done. 
I do not. This is the story of how I quit horseback riding. I'm done. I don't want to keep riding my horse because I cannot stand the cold and the dark. So my mom said, Cassidy, if you're really serious about this, you can pay me the rest of the month's leasing fees, which was about $100. I was 12 years old, so $100 was a massive amount. Or you can go just this one time. I know it's going to be really hard. I know you don't want to do it, but just do it this one time, and we can talk about it at a different time, about if you want to quit. Or you can pay me the $100 now. And I think my mom expected me to say something, but instead, I ran upstairs, grabbed a handful of babysitting cash, put the $100 in her hand, and never went back. <laughs> I would say maybe I'm more committed to not doing things than to doing them. I was not the picture of commitment. I didn't run with perseverance my commitment to my horse, to myself, to my parents' investment. I let myself get distracted by the cold and dark winter, by my own comfort, instead of riding with perseverance to see my commitment through. Today, we'll be continuing in the series, Learning from Legends, where we look at the great cloud of witnesses, as Hebrews 12.1 calls it, that's listed in Hebrews 11, which is sometimes known as the Hall of Faith. So as I was preparing for this, I was reading through Hebrews 12.1 in a couple of different versions, and the message version kind of stuck out to me. It's a little bit more of a commentary, and so it sounds a little more like familiar words that we use. Um, so Hebrews 12.1 in the message says, do you see what this means? All these pioneers who blazed the way, all these veterans cheering us on, it means we'd better get on with it. Strip down, start running, and never quit. No extra spiritual fat, no parasitic sins. We have people in the sidelines cheering us on, and that's what Hebrews 11 tells us. Other versions say that we throw off the sin that so easily entangles us so that we can run with perseverance the race set out before us. So many of the people listed in Hebrews 11 who are commended for their faith are actually more like failures of faith. They're ones who didn't walk straight in the will of God, even though he did some pretty incredible miracles in them and through them. And while this can be disappointing sometimes that humans are failures, I think it gives me a lot of hope. I love and I'm so thankful for their examples of both faithfulness and failure in things that are far more serious than how long we do hobbies for. Because if I'm honest, I have things in my life, stories of faithfulness and failure in my life that are much more serious than just horseback riding. Today, we'll be talking about Joseph. Joseph is mentioned in Hebrews 11, 22, for a part of his life that I've never paid attention to. We know Joseph and the coat of many colors. We know Joseph as the favored child. But this is the end of his life. And I think as we read about the end of Joseph's life, we'll find some encouragement in terms of running our race with perseverance. The verses we will read this morning end the book of Genesis, like I just said. If you remember or if you know very much about the Bible, Genesis begins 
as the first book of the Bible with creation. God creates order out of disorder and chaos. God creates from an overflow of the Trinity's community. And God creates man and woman in God's image and declares them very good. And it's this beautiful community of God and man. But today we come to the end of Genesis, where generations have come through and have lived in ways that are not reflective of their creator, whose image is inside of them. Abraham, who pretended his wife was his sister, so he wouldn't die. Isaac, who favored a child. Jacob, who stole his birthright, his brother's birthright to become the one with greater inheritance. And now Joseph. They've been both faithful and have failed, and now Joseph's life is ending with the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 50, verses 24 through 26 in the NLT say, Soon I will die, Joseph told his brothers, but God will surely come to help you and lead you out of this land of Egypt. He will bring you back to the land he solemnly promised to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath, and he said, when, when God comes to help you and lead you back, you must take my bones with you. So Joseph died at the age of 110. The Egyptians embalmed him, and his body was placed in a coffin in Egypt. If we are to understand the significance of the end of Joseph's life, we have to remember the rest of his life that led to those points. Joseph was the favored child who got the coat of many colors, and he grew up with his pride being stroked by both his earthly father and visions of his brothers bowing down to him, his older brothers bowing down to him. These visions were given to him by God, and he would tell these dreams of his brothers bowing down to him to his brothers, which surely did not go over well. And it didn't, because they then decide to send him off into slavery. They pretend that he's died to his father, so his father thinks he's gone. And I would say this position of being in slavery probably brought down Joseph's pride a little bit. So when he's sold into slavery in Egypt, Joseph rises to a place of trust because Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard, sees the things that Joseph can do. And so Potiphar begins to trust him more and more until Potiphar's wife falsely accuses Joseph of sexual assault. This lands Joseph in jail, and this dance with pride continues, with his pride once more being struck down. In jail, just as in slavery, there's a pain of betrayal for Joseph, first from his brothers, his own family, and then by his trusted advisor and boss. Some of us may call this pain a valley. Maybe you have experienced slavery or jail. But even if you haven't, think about a place of pain in your life today. 
Do you have a low point, a valley that you're walking in right now, outside of these church walls, maybe? Maybe a family member or a friend has betrayed you or lost some trust in you or lied about you. Maybe there's not, bank, there's not money in your bank account when you need it. Maybe people are shifting around you. Maybe they're moving or they're changing groups or they're changing their opinions on things. Maybe there are cracks in your family that you wish you could hide your eyes from, but they're glaringly obvious. Maybe it's none of these things. Maybe there's another spot of pain in your life. Whatever it is, though, I would guess that you have some kind of pain because I have pain in my life. So imagine with me for a second if Joseph was standing up here on this stage with me, if we were doing a co-sermon type of thing. Imagine. What would he say to you? I would imagine that as Joseph listened to your pain, saw the distance you felt between you and God, heard the betrayal of friends and family, or the poverty and scarcity of just not enough. I would imagine that he would listen and he would say, yeah, that's hard. Have you ever had anybody look at you and say that before? What you're feeling and going through is hard. I think Joseph would stop and say that to you, and then I think he would encourage you to persevere, to take heart. Some points in the running will feel much more difficult, and they might even feel like you're walking. But take heart and persevere, because surely God will visit you. This is the wording that's found in the NIV translation of verse 24. Surely God will visit you. Selfishly, I love that Joseph experienced pain and then still got visions from God. God still communicated with Joseph while he was in the prison cell, while he was in slavery. The Lord still communicates to us when we're feeling pain. may not be through visions, but he still communicates with us. So the Lord talks to Joseph through visions and dreams, and a number of years after being in, put in prison, the Pharaoh needed an interpreter for some confusing dreams he was having. Joseph quickly rose to the top of interpreters and became Pharaoh's number two guy in charge after correctly interpreting some of his dreams. This put Joseph in a position of power during a time of both abundance in crops and famine. And given his past, I would imagine that Joseph might have struggled with some pride. However, this time, Joseph chooses to remember the promise of God to his father, Jacob. In this famine, people from all over are coming to the reserves that Joseph has ensured to get some food. And his brothers come 
and they don't recognize him because it's been years since they sent him off into slavery. And so Joseph has some choices here. He can choose what he's going to remember. The memory of God and God's promise led Joseph to face his brothers with forgiveness, to give them their fair share of crops that they were promised. And Joseph chose forgiveness because he had in mind the long game of eternity. He remembered what God had promised to his fathers, land, establishment. As I've been thinking about Joseph, this part of his story has been the most challenging. Joseph held power and influence over not only his family and his people, the Israelites, but over all of Egypt, over all the people who had enslaved him, worked him to the bone, put him in prison. And it has me asking myself, what power and influence do I have in my life that may be distracting me from the promise and presence of God? What power do I hold that may distract me, may take me into some sins that easily entangle and need grounding in the presence and promise of God? Some of us may call this a mountaintop if we're using the valley for the pain. We're finally in a place where we can lean into our gifts. We're finally in a place that we've prayed for for so long. What are we going to do with that privilege? Maybe you're a parent. I hear sometimes parents get frustrated with their kids. Maybe when your parents frustrate, or when your kids frustrate you, your parents do. Maybe you have the power to enforce some punishments that they have to obey, but may be unfair. Maybe you're boss over some employees and you have the power to ask anything of them, and they have to do it because it's their job. What kinds of things are you asking your employees to do? Maybe it's something else entirely, but think of times in your life where you've been given a power or a position or some influence that you didn't ask for, that other people didn't receive. Maybe it's a job promotion. Maybe someone trusts you with some significant information. Maybe you were accepted into a school or a residency or a program. Even in your places of pain in the valley, you have power and influence somewhere in your life. The promise of God, which is God's presence and a future with this God of Joseph who will fulfill his promises can be incredibly grounding if we ever forget the responsibility we have with the things that we've been given. On the mountaintop of our lives, the promise of God's presence can protect us from falling super hard into the next valley that we experience. If Joseph were sitting next to me on the stage this morning, I think he would listen to our high places, to our mountaintops and influence and power and ask us, what are you going to do with that? 
How will we throw off the sin of pride or envy or name the sin that easily entangles you? It might be different than mine. How will we throw that off in those places where we feel on top? How will we keep our eyes on the promise of God's inbreaking presence when we're not in a place where we feel deeply our need for his provision? So this is the life of Joseph, one of pride and power and pain, hills and valleys and mountaintops. What I see when I read about the end of Joseph's life, why he's commended for his faith all the way in Hebrews 11, is a confidence that the exodus will happen, that the people will be established hundreds of years before it actually happens. That Joseph is sure that the Lord is faithful. Joseph says, surely God will visit you. And Joseph says this when he wasn't with Abraham who received the promise of a people and a land. And he won't be with Moses when Moses picks up Joseph's bones and takes them out of Egypt. And Joseph is not going to be with Joshua who in the book of Joshua takes over the promised land and starts establishing the people. Joseph's in this weird place of limbo. And yet still, in the pain and the power, hills and valleys, Joseph remembers the promise of God, that God will visit the Israelites. Walter Brueggemann defines helpfully the idea of a visit of God as an exodus-ending presence of God. And as I've been thinking, there's a couple other things I've added to that. The exodus-ending, in-breaking presence of God in history, in our world today. As I think about Joseph, I wonder how he remembered the promise of God's visit throughout his lifetime, how he got through the struggles and the celebrations, and still in these last moments was so centered on God's faithfulness that he, would neither, that he neither received nor would see fulfilled. And I wonder if he persevered in his race so well because he knew the stories of the times that God had shown up, that God's presence was especially felt in his ancestors' lives. And I wonder if we too can persevere when we remember the stories, both our own and others, of God's exodus ending in breaking presence of God. That's part of the importance of the Bible. That's one of the many, many gifts of the Bible is we have stories of human failure and God's faithfulness that we can tell when our sin begins to entangle us. In the book of Genesis, the exodus ending presence of God begins with creation. And at the end of Genesis, God's presence is a promise for the ending of slavery. For the Israelites, this presence of God was found first in the desert, then in Canaan, the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, and the temple in Jerusalem. 
This exodus ending of God is a literal exodus. God bringing the people miraculously through the Red Sea, impossibly, and providing daily what they need despite so much sin, so much doubt, so much turning away and sin that entangled the Israelites time and time again. And then he ended the exodus. God was faithful to the Israelites. And friends, we are here today in Alma Church of God, both the building and the people, because there is a further exodus ending of God. Because this world is not our final home, but it's the one we're living in right now. Because Jesus, God in flesh, came to earth to dwell among us. Jesus came, mysteriously fully God and fully man, to make known the will and the kingdom of God, to heal, to give worth and salvation to those who are unseen, to show what, the, what rest in the midst of a crazy life is, to call people to a higher way of life, to bring meaning to meaningless traditions, and to bring all peoples, all peoples, into the kingdom of God. This Jesus lived, died, resurrected, and ascended, fully God and fully man, again, such a mystery. And this, friends, is our story. In the power and the pain and the valleys and the mountaintops, that we have a God who enters into our lives to end our exodus, our slavery, our separation from God. These are the stories we tell when we don't see where God is, when we can't remember who God has been to us. We tell the biblical story because it is our story. Surely God will visit us. God promises to break into our story, into our history, not ours only on an individual level, but ours as a church body, as a big C church body over place and time. When you are in a valley place of pain, may you remember that God enters in even when everything doesn't go your way. When you are in pain, you are not alone. And when you're on the mountaintop of power and influence, may you remember that the good God enters in for the forgotten and the unforgiven. And we are called to step in the same way. One of the primary pieces of the story of this promise of God that we know of as the people of God, that we need to be reminded of to continue to remember in every situation of our lives is the posture of Jesus near the end of his life. Jesus himself gives us a way to remember him and his story together with the rest of the big C church over place and time. And this is called communion. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he said, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup, 
is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Surely God will visit us. Friends, as Ben said earlier, here at Alma First Church of God, we practice an open communion, which means that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ as Lord can partake. Our servers will come down the aisle in just a moment, and as the plate is handed to you, make sure to grab both cups for both the bread and the juice and hold on to it and take a moment to center your heart. We'll partake together in just a moment. But give thanks to the Lord for who he is when we do not see it. Remember his death until he comes again. Let's Jesus said to his disciples on that holy night, this is my body, take and eat. Jesus said, this is my blood, take and drink. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are grateful for the history we have that shows who you are. We are grateful for the promise and assurance that surely you will visit us. May we be open and as we declare your death until you come again, we confess the times we turn from you and we accept your victory on our behalf. Amen. Brothers and sisters, as you go from this place today into your valleys and your mountaintops, may you remember that the Lord will visit you, that surely he will come alongside you in those moments. And may we cling together to the stories of God's faithfulness, together as a church, reminding each other to run with perseverance in the same way that Joseph ran his race with perseverance. Now will you join me in saying our final word together. And our God will meet all our needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen.